Hi, and welcome to the Slush Podcast. As you probably know, Slush is the world's leading startup event. You're about to hear an interview conducted at Slush 2017 on the Founder Studio stage, where the biggest names in tech sit down for an intimate Q&A. In this episode, we'll hear from Renaud Bichoz, the technical co-founder of Eventbyte. Renault has anticipated the arrival of social media, big data analysis, and the shift to mobile devices. He was interviewed by Charlotte Liukas. So hi Renault, welcome to Finland. Is it your first you. time at Slush? Uh, first time at Slush, second time in Finland. Wonderful. Any first impressions? Uh, it's very slushy today, so it's Slush. I think has uh, the right name for. <laughs> So our topic for the next half an hour is going to be growth and uh, especially scaling up, which would be a topic that Renault would know a lot about. Um, maybe could we start with just sort of recapping the different growth stages of Eventbrite? You guys are uh, several hundred com- uh, employees right now and over a decade old. Uh, when did you stop being a startup? So we started the company at the end of 2005 with uh, my two co-founders. We started in San Francisco. And there's, I think, three big t- stages in our growth. Uh, the first three years where we were mostly bootstrapped, very small team, haven't raised much money along the way, and really trying to find that product market fit with um, the event organizer group. And at the end of 2009, that's when we raised our Series A with Sequoia, uh, six and a half million. Then I think we took that opportunity to really conquer the U.S. market. Uh, so we expanded our team quite a, quite a lot over the next two or three years. And then the last stage, starting in 2011, is when we truly internationalized our platform. So we launched our first office abroad in London in 2011. We launched in pretty much every single country in Europe at that time. Uh, we didn't have people on the ground, but over the last, next five or six years, we built up the team quite a lot in in Europe. We acquired company in Europe, um, and now we're pretty much at the stage where we're not definitely not a startup. We're almost exiting the scale-up phase. We have 700 plus people, ten uh, ten countries covered with people on the ground. Uh, so it's it's been a very interesting journey and a lot learned along the way. And on that note, any do's and don'ts. What has been the most uh, challenging part of scaling Eventbrite? Well, I think we had um, a scary times in 2008. We were supposed to raise our Series A at that time, but that's when the financial crisis happened. And that's when Sequoia put their uh, memo, rest in peace, uh, startups, you're going to have to uh, not raise money for a while because nobody wants to invest in startups anymore. So we still went out and tried to raise money, uh, just couldn't because nobody really wanted to invest. So we had to rely on on friends and family to bridge the one million round uh, to get us to the end of 2009 when the conditions were a bit better and we managed to raise from Sequoia. So th- that was probably one of the key moments in our life that we survived, I think, was a good indication that our business was not recession-proof, but that it still could grow despite the financial crisis that was happening. Uh, we actually had a lot of growth in 2008 and 2009. So that was a good validation for our business model, and then that got confirmed when we managed to raise money from Sequoia. So um, you're an engineer, or you're a technical co-founder of Eventbrite. Um, 
there's a lot of complexity that comes with scaling, and you guys are currently processing what two million tickets every week, if I recall. Yeah, that's yeah. about it. Um, what was the biggest learning you've had from the sort of technical side of scaling a um, product? Well. I think the main lesson was to expect the unexpected because we have a self-service platform. Anyone can sign up, anyone can create events, anyone can sell tickets. So very early on when we had very few servers, we still had very successful events use the platform because pretty much there was nothing else out there. So they used us. We had 100,000 people uh, type of events like a music convention in, in uh, Mexico used us. We had no ID. And, that's the type of events that really make you realize that you have to take scaling very seriously, especially infrastructure scaling. So after this type of events, we invested heavily in building our infrastructure to be ready for any type of event. And today, we have on sales that happen very regularly that sell thousands of tickets in, in a few minutes. Uh, but we're able to do that because we invested the time that it took to build a system that's uh, very scalable, that can handle bursts. The event ticketing business is notorious for having site crash when big events go on sale. We've had many We've of these over the years. Here at Slush as well. <laughs> uh, but I think today we're in a good spot. We've proven that we can handle massive load. Uh, we've built that over time, so we have a lot of knowledge that very few companies have out there today. And we see that as a major competitive advantage. And what about yourself personally? How has your job changed over the last decade? Well, it's changed quite a lot because I was the only developer on the team at the beginning. So I used to do everything front-end, back-end, database administrator, sysadmin, pretty much everything we had to do to survive and to build a product. And then over time, I had to become a manager, so hire people, uh, find the best ones, how to structure the teams, how to work with our product team. So there's a lot of learning when you're building teams. And um, we evolved the uh, organization overall almost constantly over the last 10 years. So each time, we had to find our place as co-founders. Um, Julia, for example, who's now our CEO, was our president at the time, and she really focused on culture for a long time before switching to becoming CEO. Uh, I had to find also what, what I wanted to be within the organization, and I found that I'm very effective at tackling big projects. So that's what I've been focusing on over the last few years. Internationalization, for example, was something I believed we had to do. Our platform wasn't ready, so I invested a lot of time with my engineers to make it ready, and that's the type of challenges that I get excited about. Um, so, team and people. Um, how many of you in the audience are sort of struggling with um, technical hiring or have questions or concerns related to talent acquisition? Um, also, if you have any questions, we can um, get them to the slido.com uh, platform, or we can throw around microphones. So just sort of wave a hand if you want to ask something. Um, but so yeah, technical hiring. Any tips, do's, don'ts? What's the rate that you're growing right now? And where are your engineers located? Um, so we have three engineering teams at the moment. We have San Francisco, which is our historical base. We have about probably 100 engineers there. Uh, we have Mendoza in Argentina, where we acquired a company there and found that their engineers were, were really good and there was a big pool and very few startups. 
So we have been very successful hiring there. And also in Nashville, we opened Nashville as our customer service center, uh, which was in San Francisco before. Uh, and then found that there were really good colleges around with very talented engineers. So we've been building that team up over there. I think the one thing for tech hires is the difference between who you need at the beginning. I think you need the jack of all trades, people who can do many things and are not afraid of tackling mobile if they have to or to dig in the database to find that problem that is preventing them from scaling. And then over time, you start hiring more and more specialists, people who are very expert in their domains, and that can take your overall um, technical infrastructure to the next level because they've done it before elsewhere. They've had to handle the load that you're under. I think this type of experience is really hard to get from reading books, for example. So the jack-of-all-trades tend to not be as effective there. Um, so that's, I think, the main difference between startup and scale-up in the type of people that you need to solve the problems that you face over time. Um, I think interestingly for you, in your journey with Eventbrite, you've acquired six companies. Is that correct? Can you talk a bit about the sort of acquisition process and how that affected culture and um, scaling? So we've been quite careful on the acquisition side. We we acquired company that we had known for quite a while already. So a few examples like Eventios, we met the founders probably three years before we acquired the company. Um, we wanted to make sure that they were aligned with the way we were thinking, that they would stay on for quite a while after uh, the acquisition, uh, and that, that they shared a vision that we had for democratizing ticketing. I think we have to find this DNA in people we acquire so that they get fully engaged with post-acquisition and remain at the company. Out of all the six companies, we still have most of the founders that, and the employees of these companies, which I think is pretty impressive in our day and age where acquisitions get killed as soon as they merge into the new entity. So we spend a lot of time figuring out ahead of time if, if we think it's going to be a, a good acquisition. And then we spend a lot of time also making sure the integration goes well, that people find the right place inside our organization post-acquisition to really work on the things that they're passionate about, uh, to work with colleagues they like, and to keep also to bring their culture into ours. So the last two acquisitions were fairly big. TicketScript in Holland was about 80 people. TicketFly in the US was close to 200 people. So adding 200 people out of uh, a 600 person team, that's a lot of people coming in into the office and new faces and new teams having to be created. So that's quite a challenge like organizationally, but also culturally. That's a very music-focused uh, culture. So they had a recording room, for example. They had bands regularly. So we tried to integrate some of these principles that they had on how they like to work, how do they like to have fun at work, uh, into the Eventbrite culture. And I think it makes us stronger and stronger over time. Thanks. That's interesting. Um, maybe we could switch to your second life. You've sort of quite recently become a venture partner at Index Ventures. Could you talk a bit about that and what kind of companies do you work with? Um, so I, I've been thinking about what to do next after Eventbrite when I quit. I don't know when it's going to be. Maybe I, I will never quit. I don't know. Uh, but I was 
angel investing already and I've been investing in 13 companies so far. So I thought, why not uh, be a VC later? And I, th I think a venture partner role was a good way to test the waters to see if I enjoy being a VC. And there's a lot of very interesting discussion we have at Index about uh, the future, about what type of companies we want to invest in. What are we looking for in companies? Uh, that's something I kind of knew from the outside, but being in the inside is a very different uh, beast and you learn a lot more about how people think about the investment, what is important to look at during due diligence, um, and the spaces that we want to be in. Because that's, as a VC, you're really trying to predict the future and it's based on historical experience investing in specific companies. So you try to extrapolate from your experience and predict what the future outcome of these companies is going to be. And it's not an easy job. Like That's the part that I found, I think, by working there is that we do spend a lot of time thinking about these issues and it's not an instinctive decision like an angel investor does where I can meet someone for an hour and decide to invest right away. At Index, it's a lot more... Um, process-oriented, it's a lot of details, and it's been very instructive for me, uh, personally. And what industries are you most excited about at the moment? I mean, we're doing a lot of B2B SaaS platforms, some consumers, um, game, I think gaming has been very big for Index. Uh, so there's a lot of, uh, we're not specialized in anything, so anything that is exciting, we look at, and um, we try to bet on the entrepreneurs first and foremost. We invest mostly at Series A, so it has to be driven by strong uh, co-founders, if possible, uh, teams that either have historical successes in the past together, or great projects that we want to be part of. So, working with Index has also brought you back to the European soil after sort of a decade in the US. Um, how does it look like here? Are you excited about the tech scene in Europe? Or? Well, I've been following the French scene for quite a while. Uh, I've been mentoring at different accelerators, being part of some funds. Um, and yeah, France has definitely taken off. I think Station F has done a lot of good. French tech, despite some of their mishaps over the years, has done a lot of good also to evangelize France as a tech destination. Um, and Companies are not afraid of setting, setting up shop or setting up R&D centers in France, for example, which before wasn't the case, really. So I think France definitely on the map. I see the Nordics also after the uh, Skype successes, the uh, Spotify successes. I think there's a lot of, first of all, angel investors and experienced VCs who are seeding the market with the right investments and the right talent. I think talent is equally important uh, to not force successful companies to expatriate themselves to be successful or to raise the next round. I think this is probably what's changing the most, is that there's less necessity of going to the US to build a successful company anymore. Um, and that wasn't the case five or six years ago. So if you were building a company now, where would you headquarter it? Ooh, that's a tough one. Probably it's still in San Francisco because I have the, the network there and I have the connections. But if to hire people, that would be a different question. I think there's many centers with excellent engineers across the world. France is a great example. 
Argentina, we've had a lot of success with our own hires. So I would definitely look at lower cost centers if, if possible. Uh, I don't think having your entire team in SF makes sense anymore. It's just too much competition there. People are jumping ship much how, faster than elsewhere. How early on in the growth stage can you make that sort of a jump that you sort of say separate engineering and business and have remote offices? Or I think they early, like them? some startups I work with, they have most of their engineers in France and two people in the US. And they're a 15-person company. So it's, it's not impossible. And with the tools that we have to work remotely today, I, I don't think it's a barrier anymore. What you need are the right people, people who, can, who don't need to be managed, for example, who are uh, self-driven or motivated by whatever you're building. That's way more important, I think, than, than where you are. Um, Hotjar, for example, is a company I've been talking to recently, and they are fully distributed. So they are examples today of very successful companies that have taken a different model, different approach to scaling their business. A question there? Can we get the microphone, please? Yeah, hello. Do you hear me? Yeah, hello, Renaud. My name is uh, Janne. I'm at a company called Stru. And uh, I'm just curious to know uh, your strategic choices uh, in terms of uh, go-to-market and expansion. I mean, uh, your... Your platform is basically for anybody to use, but it also caters uh, large enterprises. What, what kind of choices did you make in the beginning, and uh, what kind of would you do anything uh, differently? What was the thing that kicked off uh, in terms of turnover and stuff? Um, so at the beginning, we were very focused on the the small events. Like we thought that was going to be a sweet spot, being uh, the long tail of events things that nobody cared about before. There was no technology solution for them. So that's what we focused on at the beginning. But over time, we've had much bigger and bigger and bigger events start using us. So we really focused, probably starting in 2010, when we started having these conversations with much larger enterprise organizers and started building for them. And today, I would say like a majority of our revenue comes from these larger entities. Uh, whether it's endurance races or big festivals, music festivals or food and wine festivals, venues that have events throughout the year. Uh, these are, have become our, our customers and the long tail is not as, it's not that it's not as important, we still want to cater to it, but it's not what drives our roadmap. I think enterprise level clients have different expectations, different needs, financial reconciliation, integration with their accounting systems, uh, multi-user permission. That's the things that we have to build for them that are not so applicable for the long tail. Um, and then internationally, we, I think England was an easy choice for us as the first country to expand in. London was already our third biggest city in terms of ticket sales when, by the time we expanded there. And then over time, like, Europe in general really started taking off and having the, the highest growth. So that's where we expanded next. After that, we make bigger bets. Like Brazil, we acquired Eventios mostly to be in the Brazilian market. Um, we thought this was going to be the market of the future. It's 200 million people, very attractive. We didn't have strong organic traction, but we felt that with the right sales team, we could penetrate the market quite quickly and, and get a good market share there. So 
different types of bets. Some of sometimes we're driven by organic growth. Sometimes we make uh, specific bets on different uh, countries and then different sectors also. Music has been a big focus in the last two years. Uh, we acquired TicketScript and TicketFly because of their music portfolio. So it's been a conscious decision to go after the music market and it's paying off because we're getting a lot more customers in that space. Do we have any other questions? They're in the front row. Okay. Uh, hi, you said that you turn yourself from a um, developer to a CEO. Uh, how do you do that? How do you train yourself to be no, to become not a CEO. CEO? No, sorry, no, my co-founder is the CEO. But okay, but uh, <laughs> like, as a leader, or as a manager, yeah. how, how do you do that? Um, slowly over time, trying to understand what what motivates people. Um, and then figure out what my role was. I think nobody tells you what you should be doing when you're a founder. Uh, some founders want to be managing large groups. Some founders want to be fixing bugs. So there's quite a variety. And I think the beauty of being a founder is that you can decide on your own what's best for you. So I took on many roles over the years and found that I can, I can drive change within the company. And that's why, why I'm still there. Like if I was not having an impact, I think I would have moved on. Uh, but I think you can learn by doing, you can learn by reading, and I've read a lot of books about management. You can learn by learning from people you hire. That's also something we've done quite well, like bring senior people who have managed very large organizations to learn of, about what systems they use, how do they think about the organization overall, how do they define the profiles that they need. And over time, as you inject all that into your own system of thinking, you can develop your own strategy for being a leader. And, and as a founder, I think you have a, a very legitimate reason to feel like a leader to the teams. That's what we're trying to do. Thanks. Um, the gentleman in the back had a question. Hi, do you mean, you, okay, perfect. So my question is, uh, the event market space seems quite mature now. Do you ever fear disruption in it or not? Uh, of course, I think it's up to us to lose this, this race. I think we see it as a race. There's technology out there that we haven't really touched that I think could have very dramatic changes on the industry. I think the good part about the industry is that it's, it's not as slow, to, it's not as fast to adapt. So we're not a consumer app that people can switch over easily in an instant because they get tired of it. These businesses need our software to run their business. So there's some built-in uh, latency in, in the market, which probably makes it harder to detect when big shifts are happening and maybe you're losing market share, you don't realize it. But we're also very conscious that we need to stay on top and keep innovating. I think that's the hard part when you get after 10 years of being in business and having a very solid user base, um, you could get very complacent and not try to innovate anymore. And I think that's the danger for any company that has gone past that scale-up phase. How do you keep the energy, the excitement? How do you integrate things like blockchain or AI or all these new trends we're talking about so that you can build the best product out there? Um, when mobile came along, like the first thing we did was not a consumer app. It was an app for organizers to replace the scanners they were using at the entrance. So how do you integrate this technology the right way without taking too much risk, but still 
being evolutive enough that you can have that bandwidth to integrate into your products, whatever out there is the best, is, is probably key to stay on top and keep on winning. Okay, so on that note, I'd like to thank Renaud for coming. Hope you have a great time here at Slush. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Slush podcast. Find out more about Slush at slush.org. Please rate and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts. And if you haven't yet done so, subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.